And if you don't think those are divided, those pericopes, if they're, you feel free to say, well, I'm going to take four verses beyond that. Yeah, I, I got you. Okay, thank you. Oh, you got two. No, this is... This is receivers. Okay, okay. All right, I'll hold on to that. And if the dates don't mesh, let me know. Okay. I'm just glad that... Oh, is it ready? I mean, it's rolling, right it's now. rolling now. It I will, I will, brother, thank you. Um, I'm just glad that we maintain 35 to 45, actually probably 40 to 50. Mm -hmm. I think the average has been about 55. Wow. So, um, for, I mean, what, for a long study like this. Yeah. You know, yeah. sometimes they just say, well, enough's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, sure. we're close. We're close. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we're getting there. And we're going to, and, and I feel obligated to finish it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, we need to, you know, obviously. Yeah. Okay, partner, I'm going to finish chapter 16, then you got it. Okay. Hey, you ready? I am. Yeah, I am, partner. Okay, brother. Hey, William, are you going to be here August the 27th? Yeah, I'll be here. Okay. If you could look at that, if you could teach okay. standalone, whatever you want. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be out of town, and, and, and Philip won't be here, so we're not doing Revelation for okay. that one Sunday. August And if you could look through that and... and what was it, August what? August 27th. Okay, August 27th. Right now, that'd be a great time for everybody involved. We want everybody to have a 
We'll take a few scrapes, we'll take a few bruises. We don't want anything broken if at all possible. But please let everybody have a great time. Take care of it and just grow close to you, dear God. Thank you once again for this <coughs> place. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this time together. And I once again I want to thank you again for your son Jesus Christ. Amen. As we pray for this each and every time. Amen. Amen. Okay, Scotty, thank you again. Class, church, good morning. Uh, no whiteboard, no, no PowerPoint, just the Bible. I know that's unique, <laughs> for me anyway, although hopefully we always return to Scripture. Okay, I'm, I've got about five minutes this morning, and then Philip's going to take us, start us with chapter 17 of Revelation, um, but I want to finish chapter 16, and I, th I think we can do it quickly. Keep in mind that we're talking about, you know, wrapping up the seven cups of wrath. And now, if you haven't been attending, then this might all sound pretty foreign to you, and I encourage you to pick up the Bible sometime in the next few days and, and read chapter 16. That's what we're doing right now. Um, so let's look down at verse 12, and I want to very quickly cover chapter 16, 12 through 21. All right. <clears throat> Remember that we've already been through the six seals, uh, seven seals that were broken. The seventh seal introduced us to seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet introduced us to seven uh, bowls or cups of wrath. And then following this, we're going to go through the fall of Babylon, um, chapter 17 and 18, and then press all the way through chapter 22. Uh, you know, within about a couple of months or so, we'll be able to wrap up the entire, the entire apocalypse. Okay, we're talking now about the sixth cup of wrath. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Last week I shared an example of the Euphrates being re-diverted uh, or diverted away from Babylon. The, the Euphrates River ran right through the ancient city of Babylon, and uh, kings in the east had been trying to conquer Babylon for an eon, and uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, did so in 537 B.C. by diverting the Euphrates River and marching right down the center of Babylon on the bed of the Euphrates. The point being that the seven churches of Asia from Ephesus listed first to um, Laodicea li uh, listed last, all seven churches understood the symbol, understood the analogy. Verse 13, then I saw three evil, unclean spirits that looked like frogs, and frogs were always a symbol of a plague or they were, they were an, an unclean animal. Uh, they continuously croaked, empty, you know, sort of sounding empty. So I think the word, the image of the frog was, was well placed here. Three unclean spirits looking like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. I think there's really somewhat of a play on words here. You know, the, the word spirit in, in Greek, and for that matter Hebrew as well, means uh, breath, breath. And so John, God through John, is telling the seven churches that out of the devil, the dragon, out of the um, beast, that, and they probably thought of Rome, the, the, the Antichrist, and out of the false prophet come these three demons. 
And these three demons, instead of being breathed, breathed out of good, they are, the, they are the, the breath of evil, if that makes any sense to you. Verse 14, they are spirits uh, of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Just as a reminder, there has really, uh, not just Revelation, but from the very beginning of, of our text in Genesis, you know, we have this concept of one day there will be a great battle. The battle will be, will be between uh, good and evil. In fact, let me, um, I've referenced Psalm 2. Had it memorized, I think, years ago. I've, you ever tried to memorize uh, a lot of text? And it, it's really a great habit to get into. Um, anyway, look at, look at the second verse of Psalm 2. <clears throat> Just a reminder that the whole ancient idea of a, of a final battle is not novice to the seven churches. It's not new to Revelation. It just uh, permeates all of Scripture. Uh, verse 2, Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed one, against the Christ. Now the final battle will be taking place symbolically in Armageddon, and I know you've heard of the city Armageddon before. Actually, um, it's not the, the the word itself is somewhat of a corruption of Armageddon, the Armageddon, literally meaning the mount or the hill. If it was Armageddon, it would be the city of Armageddon, Armageddon, the mount or the hill of Armageddon and probably associated with, uh, with the ancient hill of Megiddo. Um, don't know if, if uh, as we continue on, especially as we get into chapter 19 and the battle itself, we'll probably come back to this, but I want you to understand that number one, the word's not used anywhere else in the Bible. Anywhere. If, if indeed the, the Megiddon is Megiddo, then it is used in the Old Testament, and I think that's what the seven churches were thinking of. Um, the hill of Megiddo is about a 35-acre small precipice in the middle or close to the plain of Jezreel. And I don't know how else to... If you were to see it on a map, especially topographical map, it would make a lot of sense. From Egypt all the way up to Damascus, you've got this plain of Jezreel, and it's considered the highway of many, the highway from, of battle after battle after battle after battle. In fact, I just read recently an archaeologist named Klein, Dr. Klein, C-L-I-N-E, from the University of Cincinnati, has been for decades digging uh, in the plain of Jezreel near the Mount of Megiddo which is about, I don't know, 30 miles northwest of Israel. So it's close. It's not in Jerusalem, but it's fairly close. And he's uncovered at, at least, he says, 34 signs, 34 ruins of previous battles. I have read, you know, in Air War College, we studied Napoleon. And I was there in 2099 and 00. It's a one-year residency there at Air University. Anyway, he studied Napoleon, and he talks about the, the uh, plain of Jezreel. And Napoleon, apparently, in the early 19th century, 18, 
1810, uh, made a trip and saw, and he stood on the Mount of Megiddo, about a 35 acre, you know, 14 hectares little mount overlooking the plain of Jezreel. And Napoleon's comment was, this is the perfect place for war. He said, there's not an army in the world that would not enjoy maneuvering in this plane. And so it's just, it just, I would just want bring that up that the seven churches of Asia understood the concept of the various battles that had transpired in the plain of Jezreel, the plain of Esdraelon in Greek, same thing, Jezreel in the Old Testament, uh, and Megiddo. And so very likely the Armageddon or Harmageddon is referencing this area. But keep in mind that just as Babylon, there was no city of Babylon in the first century. I mean, it wasn't, there was, but it wasn't any powerful city. Babylon was a symbol. I think they were referencing, I think they were thinking of Rome. Uh, and today, Rome's nothing, unless you would consider the, the papal state as possibly being the center of evil, and many conservative scholars think that. Um, the point needs to be taken that whenever we hear Armageddon and we hear Babylon and we hear the dragon and the antichrist and the false prophet, all of this lends itself to the forces of good fighting the forces of evil. Christ will always be victorious. Sin will um, never go unpunished. Rome acted with impunity. In fact, let's keep reading here. I think we'll finish that up. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. By the way, from verse 17 down, down through 21, it's nature. I find that really wonderfully fascinating. Only God could do this. Nature itself warring against evil, warring against humanity. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, symbolizing it's going to go over the entire world. Um, and out of the temple came a, came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done, it is finished, right? Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city... Babylon, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. I think he's referencing Rome again here. God remembered Babylon the great. Now notice what he does. And gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Don't ever think that evil acts with impunity. There will be a reckoning. And the reckoning will come when Christ returns. The reckoning will come in the final battle between good and evil. The reckoning will come and the fury of God will be poured out upon evil. And if you're one of the seven churches and you've seen your families and your family and friends and so forth martyred for Christ and you've been persecuted your entire life by this by this evil empire, by Rome, or evil itself, and you're, and you're wondering, will this ever come to a close? In fact, the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 19, where the saints beneath the altar um, clamoring to God, when will we be avenged? And as Revelation unfolds, the answer is soon. 
soon. Be patient. It will come. Be faithful to the end. This will happen. Verse 19, again, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, from the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each. These are a hundred weight hailstones fell upon men. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Well, that's the seventh, um, the seventh cup of wrath that was poured out. And verse, uh, what is it? Verse 16 says, it is done. We, now we pick up in chapter 17, one more interlude at which will add more information to the storyline that one day Christ will return, He will remove all evil, He will make all things new. It was expressed in the, in the seven seals of the scroll. That's what the scroll contained. It was uh, told, the story was told again with more detail with the seven trumpets. And now the seven cups of wrath are really unlimited. And we move right into chapter 17 and chapter 18 which I find as two of the most interesting chapters, really chapter 17 more than 18, uh, they're all incredibly interesting, but it really, um, it's, it's just a fascinating chapter. It, it talks about the fall of Babylon. Uh, the seven churches would probably think of the fall of Rome. You could, you could, me, I just think of the fall of evil. I'm telling you, when I read Revelation, it's, it's not a 2,000-year-old story. It's living today good against evil. And I too wonder sometimes, Lord, when will this end? I mean, when, when, why don't you just change it right now? I mean, well, you know, all this, it, it's getting to the point where, where sin is so glamorized. Romans talks about it. And um, I, this is a rabbit I'm just now chasing, aren't I? In Romans chapter 3, we, you know, we, we, no, Romans 1, we hear, about, well, shoot, if I'm going to take up Philip's time, I might as well do it you know, speaking from the Lord and not from Witt's 64-year-old memory. Okay, okay, maybe not, maybe not. I just had a birthday, I forgot. Okay. Oh, and this is, this is not my normal Bible, but I think I can find it. Yeah, yeah, here it is. Uh, look, look at Romans chapter 1. This, this is what I think of when I think of Revelation. Look at Romans chapter 1. And we're going to go, and I'm just going to read this small little passage, and Philip, the, the floor is yours, brother. And you can take as long as you want, however many Sundays. Um, okay, look at verse 28. Furthermore, and I can't put this in context. If I do, I'll, it'll take another five minutes. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a deprived mind to do what ought not to be done. Tell me, if you, if you think of Babylon or Rome or... 2023, right here. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, notice the last phrase, but also approve 
of those who practice them. It is today, and it was current in the first century when the seven churches received this, this wonderful manuscript, not manuscript, this, this wonderful um, autograph from the Apostle John, and it's current in every generation. So don't ever think that as we look through Revelation that it's meaningless for today. It's more meaningful today probably than it was in the first century, if, if that can be the case. Okay, Philip, stand up and I'll be quiet. Yes, yes. Yeah. Please. Have we discussed the part about the Euphrates drying up? I'm sorry? The Euphrates drying up? Yeah, last week I shared a little bit on that. I yeah. Dried up today. Well, I mean, the Euphrates River today still runs, but it, it, yeah. it was, it was um, Philip, you answer that question. It was. <laughs> it, you know, when, you know, the, the symbolism is. That the, that the easiest way to march through Babylon is through the, the, the dry bed of the Euphrates because the Euphrates River ran right through Babylon. If Babylon is figuratively, if, if it's a symbol for Rome or a symbol for evil, it's pretty obvious that, that God is going to dry up the Euphrates, allowing these forces to march right through um, and all the kings, you know, who wanted to conquer Babylon, then they're going to be the ones who can do it, and there's going to be utter chaos. And I, th I think Euphrates, like the ancient city of Babylon, is a symbol. And isn't it drying up some today? It may be. It may be. It may be. In fact, I would think, I guess it is. I mean, if, you, if, if you've read that, I believe it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Do we have any other questions I can just wax eloquent on? <laughs> All right, Philip, take it. <laughs> oh. Come on, don't make fun of those poor man. I need that story of Jesus healing the deaf man. He speaks, in fact, the word, there's an Aramaic word, ephatha, be opened. I've thought about that. Lord, I would love for you. Go ahead. Right now, if you, if you want to see what we think can't happen is happening. Look at France right now. I know. There's a there's a um, Instagram that I got from a friend of mine. He shows grown men naked walking down a main thoroughfare with people on both sides, parents and small kids. Probably oblivious to the fact that he's walking down naked. I mean. But. That's, uh, you know, I mean, church, we, 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 we really do live in the last times. Now, how long that, ex that will exist, I don't know. But this is clearly the last times. Philip, please help us here, brother. All right. Where's, I'm looking for Debbie. Where is she? Oh, there she is. much oh thank you the specific question although that has relevance too but it also begs a bigger question and that's what I want to talk about for a little bit first in our time and hopefully we'll be able to get to uh, some of 17 but I do want to make a couple observations and thoughts here first of all for your consideration 
it's quite obvious when you're looking at this, whether you look at, you know, you, you read about the drying up of Euphrates and you wonder, well, well, what is this? That's a good question. You could keep on asking questions. The point that I want to make in all of this is it's important to remember that this book is written in primarily symbolic language. I can't overemphasize that enough. Symbolic language is not meant to be interpreted literally. It is not intended to be interpreted literally. And if you interpret it literally, when it is intended to be symbolic, you're going to run into tremendous problems. You're going to end up asking legitimate questions that you will find harder and harder to answer. I would argue you won't be able to answer them. There will be no one to be able to answer them. Or if you do, if you ask 100 people what does it mean, you get 100 different answers, which is not an answer. I don't believe the Bible was ever intended to be confusing. God is the ultimate author behind Scripture. And um, it is meant to be understood. It was written, at least the New Testament, was written in what's called Koine Greek. Koine being one of the words what could be translated as common. It was meant to be understood by everybody. It was meant to be that way. In the languages which the Bible was translated into in uh, were meant to be, it was meant to be understood by the masses. That's the whole reason why God put it in that language rather than Akkadian or something like that, which has 600 symbols for what we would call letters. Much more complicated. It was not intended to be that way at all. It was not. So it's very important to remember when, uh, when you're looking at this book, it is primarily symbolic language. But I also want to bring up this point here. And this is actually a point I was going to make later, but I'll make it right now. Denying a literal interpretation of a figurative passage is not denying the truth that it teaches. That's also very important to remember, too. So, so uh, do not think for a moment that when I say you're not to take certain things literally, that I'm denying any truth that he teaches, far from it. Matter of fact, just the opposite, because I believe that God wants us to understand what is going on, um, but at the same time, uh, we have to remember what John is doing. And this is sort of where I ended a couple of weeks ago when I made a comment, and actually uh, uh, Michael brought up this point, and I do want to re read this passage because uh, of its relevance uh, to this in general. Let me just read this passage here. And, and Michael also alluded to this concept as well, which is critically important to our understanding of Scripture in general. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in its place. With your feet fitted for the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I read that to remind us what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. And actually, actually, if we want to even say the entire scripture, but especially as relevant here in the book of Revelation, we are reading about spiritual warfare. That is what it is about. But you may ask yourself, well, what is John doing here then? It's very difficult. I'm sure it wasn't easy for John. But John is doing his best to describe the indescribable. That's what he's doing. He is showing us and telling us in human language about a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare that's going on. How in the world can you describe it? He's describing the indescribable. Very difficult to do. How are you going to try to describe the background of what is actually going on spiritually of what you physically see what, what is going on? And in John's day, having the emperors require that you would worship them or call them God, that your life is on the line. Remember, Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. And it isn't today either. It isn't today. It's spiritual warfare. So what John is doing is describing to us a battle and a fight that is going on, but it's an internal one. Yes, I understand there are physical manifestations and there is physical evil out there. I recognize that. But that doesn't discount the fact that ultimately, again, it's good versus evil, as Michael already said. That's what it is. Good righteousness versus evil satanic that's what the battle is and John is here trying to describe it and when we look at symbolic language as he uses I'm, I'm trying to think how, how else could you describe spiritual warfare except in this fashion as sensational as it sounds because that's probably about one of the most appropriate ways to probably even talk about it. Because how can you describe the indescribable in human language? That's what we're reading. So again, we got to be very careful 
Because if we're, if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves in deeper water with a lot more confusion and, and trying to answer all, all, all these things. Because the thing is, questions just like what Gloria asked begets other questions, which begets other questions, which begets other questions. When you take something figurative and you try to make it literal, try to interpret it as literal. I'll just give you a, a real quick example, aside from the Euphrates that was brought up there. Uh, I'll just give this. Um, in Revelation uh, 8, verse 7, I'll just read just a couple of passages here, but if you want to turn there, 8, verse 7 was one of the trumpets. It says, And the, the first angel sounded the trumpet, and the hail and fire mixed with blood was hurled down to the earth, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Of course, now if you take that literal, what are some, well, what are some questions that you would ask if you're viewing this as literal? Come up with some questions. Pardon me? Well, wait, okay, but we're reading something in the first century, though. For, okay, so what would be some questions we would try to ask here, of course, that's not a third, third of the earth. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, in the five thousand, you know, five thousand or a hundred thousand acres isn't quite going to cut it. It says a third of the earth. A third. A lot. So that's a whole whole lot. So again, you're going to. My my question would be, well, what third of the earth burned up? Um, what third of the trees burned up? And all this. Or then, in 9, chapter 4, you read about these locusts coming out of this abyss. And these go there, and, the, and these locusts are told to go there, and you're, and you're, um, and you're not to, and they told them not to harm the grass of the earth or the plant of the tree. Well, wait a minute. Now I'm a little bit confused here. Because I just read in the previous chapter from the other trumpet, it says that all the green grass was burned up. So how can these locusts be told not to eat, not to destroy the grass, uh, when it was already burned up. That's what I mean by if you take things literally, you're going to be in a bigger, bigger trouble. And then when you look at the locusts, wait a minute here. Are these even locusts? You got crowns of gold, long hair like women, teeth like uh, lions, face like humans? I don't know about all that. My point is, taking something literally that was intended figuratively is going to get you in more trouble. A lot, a lot of trouble. Because you won't be able to answer them. So that, that to me is something that we need to bear in mind. And again, remember, the bulk of the book is written in that type of language. But as I said before, something important here is this. Denying a literal interpretation is not denying the truth it teaches. We need to remember that this is a spiritual battle and there is one who wins. Good. God wins. You know, I'm glad that Michael went to that text earlier today, um, a um, messianic pa uh, passage in Psalm 2 that we read. That we're, it's not unusual to have the idea of the idea of this big war going to happen. But uh, let's go and read what... The next couple of verses says, though, it says the kings of the earth will rise up against the rulers, against the Lord, and against his anointed. 
It sounds like this great battle is going there. And, and you wonder, oh boy, who, who's going to win all this? It says, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And verse 4 really kind of summarizes the whole thing. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. <laughs> Do you really think God is worried? You really think that evil is going to overtake good? God laughs at the idea that human beings are all that. They're not. They're created beings. And those that are opposed to God himself will lose. And isn't that what the purpose of that book of Revelation is reminding you of? In the midst of the first century, or even if you take by application us today, and we see all these things going on around us, all this evil is happening, and it is happening around us. But let us not lose sight of the fact that there was a throne scene in 4 and 5 of Revelation. God is still enthroned. He's still there. He still has all his band around him. And in a sense, he probably just chuckles. What do these human beings think they're all about? If God wanted to destroy them instantly, he could. With the breath of his mouth, God has all power. He put all the stars in the, in the universe, trillions times trillions times trillions as a James Webb telescope, if you're not familiar with that. It's a new telescope that came out, took about 25, 30 years to develop it, and it's showing much more of the universe of all these things. Our Father spoke that into existence like that. That's who we're dealing with here. Let's not forget our awesome God that we serve. He really is. And we just need to remember that this book is a reminder that God is in control. Now, what we read in chapter 16, and I'll stop in about five minutes, but if you have comments or a thought Please, please do. do, do. Uh, not afraid of questions or comments like this. But I believe that chapter 16, what primarily 16 is, is dealing with is punishment on, if you want to say, the everyday sinful person. They're, they're, they're being punished here. And, as, and as, um, as Michael has already brought up, that these from the, uh, from the uh, seals, trumpets, and the bowls, the intensity gets greater and greater, and it does. That's why when you, when you read about in the, with the trumpets that there was a third of the forest destroyed and a third of the this and a third of that. But in, in, with, with the bowls, when the, when, when the seas got, uh, you know, not a third of the sea was turned to blood. All of it was turned to blood. See, again, but if you interpret that literally, uh, when, when did that happen? I don't remember reading anywhere in historical records that that ever happened. If you say, oh, it's yet in the future, then you have a bigger problem there as well. Because if it's in the future, then what relevance did it happen to anybody in the first century? It didn't. And if it happened in the past, we don't have any record of it. Something as monumental as that, we'd have a record of it. There's records of lots of things, but not that. But I believe what we're seeing is that God's punishment on those that are godless and the, and the intensity is greater and greater. So God deals with punishment 
of those folks in chapter 16. But now he's going to deal with the higher-ups, with Rome, the concilia, the people who were enforcing emperor worship. And God's going to show you, I'm going to show you how I'm going to bring them down. And that's what chapter 17 and 18 is about. And so here we're going to have a, a picture drawn by John, or really drawn by, by the angel here, that talks about that. And we'll just read just a few <clears throat> verses just to kind of whet your appetite to what chapter 17 is about. Because I think 17 is just a magnificent chapter. Because also, you'll find out in chapter 17, he's primarily using symbolic language again for the first six verses. But after the first six verses, John's astonished, it says. It's almost like he's confused. What's, what's this angel saying? And then the angel says, I'm going to explain it to you in plain English or in plain Greek. <laughs> Quite Greek. I'm going to explain it to you. And he does. Which is another very important thing to bear in mind. If God or an angel interprets a figurative area, a, a figurative passage in non-symbolic language, uh, that's probably the best interpretation to take. Because the angel's going to explain what this woman sitting on this beast is. And it's pretty clear what it is. Very clear. We will be able to fill in some of the gaps what I mean by gaps is putting names on some of these things. We'll be able to do that. And we'll look at that uh, probably sometime ne next week. But he's going to explain what this is. And so let me read the part that is the symbolic part first. And then, um, then we'll, we'll also explain more of this as well. He says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last... Oh, I'm reading chapter 15. Hello. Seventeen, excuse me, here we are. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said, Come, and I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth commit adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the spirit carried me away in, in, in the spirit to a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. It was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her, in her hand filled with abominable things, with the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the nations. And I saw that woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. One little thing just to bear in mind, just to give you an idea of, that the angel who is going to later say in verse 7, why are you astonished? I'll explain the mystery of the woman and the beast which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So the angel's going to explain what it is. But just to give you a real quick preview here, it says this great prostitute in verse 
one who sits on many waters? Look over in verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And then verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules, present tense, over the kings of the earth. Heads up, R-O-M-E. Pretty clear. Clear. The angel is the one who explained it. I'll go into greater detail with that. But the angel explains what it is. So the best course of action is to take the explanation that the angel who came from the throne room of God with the explanation. Best one to do would be accept that one. And so that's the one we'll be looking at. Uh, but this first part, we will take a look at, a, at this in greater d detail because we need to take a look at this symbolic language. But any other observations or thoughts before we have to close this for today? I just needed to get some of that preliminary out there because it can be confusing, I will agree. It, it, it can be. But at the same time, it's not meant to be confusing. It isn't. But we're dealing with spiritual warfare, and John is doing an admirable job in explaining to us what this conflict is really all about. And this was the conflict that the, our early brothers and sisters had. Of course, by application, we can apply this to today in that sense. We all have our own Rome. We all do. But these people had a literal Rome that they were dealing with, and their life was on the line as well. So we will pick up that this next week. We will really begin in verse 1 and go on, and uh, we'll take the next week or two, and, and we'll, we'll deal with that. You're pretty quiet, but hopefully next week you're going to feel free to speak up because I, I, I welcome that. I really do. And, 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 and next week, if we go, go on for two weeks, uh, I'll definitely give you the opportunity to, to have, have questions. We'll, we'll definitely have, have time for that. And I will also give you a handout because it's going to be critically important to realize he gets the language a lot from the book of Daniel. So bear in mind, we're going to look at Daniel's chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, just parts of it. Revelation 13, which happens to be the very same beast we're dealing with, the, with the uh, 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 ten horns and seven heads, and 17. They're all related. All related. And we'll look at that as well. Something to look forward to. All right. See you next week.